from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Neil McBride on October 1st, 2018. In this interview, Neil, who has been a Baha'i for many years, presents his insights on the Baha'i perspective on the state of the world. In this perspective, you'll be surprised that there is a positive aspect that gives hope to those who despair at the current affairs, particularly in this country at this time. I started the interview by asking Neil where he grew up, And what was religious life like growing up for him? I was born in Chelsea, Massachusetts, which is uh, on the port of Boston, an immigrant town, and uh, at a young age moved to the suburbs to a town called Melrose. My father and his parents were Roman Catholic. My mother was Protestant, and as was required and was the custom at the time, she agreed to become Catholic, and we were raised as Roman Catholics, though that in itself, that decision, ultimately, I think, was quite influential in my life. Can you explain for me why that was the case? Yeah, I remember my mother expressing some discontent that she was forced to give up her own Protestant belief and become Catholic. She, I think she had some resentment about that. And uh, ultimately, my parents had a difficult, very difficult marriage and were separated for 10 years during my adolescence. And they had some hostile times along the way. But I thought one of the, I've always thought that one of the things that divided them was the fact that they weren't unified in that fundamental belief. What is your spiritual journey that led you to the Baha'i faith? Well, I, the family we, we I came from was um, somewhat dysfunctional. Lots of troubles, both of my brothers and each of my parents and myself to some degree. And so I found myself over time developing a kind of a, a, an appetite, a, a thirst to try to understand situations that I was found myself in uh, that were complex and confusing and whatnot. Of course, that started from the family that I grew up in, but it also uh, has been a characteristic in my life as I find myself really wanting to understand what's going on, if you know what I mean. And that was especially true during the 60s and 70s when the events of the United States turned upside down and were even more chaotic and dramatic than what we're experiencing today. And so how was it that led you to the Baha'i faith? I was never in trouble as a young man, but I floundered a lot and eventually went through four undergraduate schools before graduating and was still trying to find my way in the world. I, I ended up in graduate school at UMass, having finished an undergraduate degree in political science and 
was working on the graduate degrees in, in education, but I found myself wandering outside the formal curriculum and reading political philosophy and some social philosophy and whatnot. And uh, at that time, I was then through people in the School of Education and particularly my advisor uh, became introduced to the Baha'i faith. Uh, initially, I had absolutely no appetite. That was a very political era. And my inquiry had always been in quasi-political pathways to belief and faith for uh, social reform and social justice. But over time, uh, as I found less hopefulness in those avenues, I ended up looking at the Baha'i faith. And it, it took me on and off a cautious four years before after I really started to look at it very seriously and ultimately saw the truth that I was looking for. So it was sort of a, a continuous association with the Baha'is that sort of uh, turned your perspective around from a political one to a spiritual one? Yeah, it was partly the uh, association with the Baha'is. They were good people, but I'd have to say in all candor, they weren't so distinctive that it was them or their behavior, but rather the, the literature that they introduced me to, I became aware of Baha'i books and Baha'i spiritual fundamentals and social, social teachings and spiritual teachings and read. And as I started to read, that was really very much the decisive factor. There was one book in particular that at that time I read, the, the world had gone through, in the United States anyway, great turmoil over issues of racism and racial injustice. And I came across and, and read a book called The Advent of Divine Justice. And for me, that was a pathway, a door opening, an awakening, because it, with such concise, clear, and powerful language, brought forth the problem of this country uh, as racism being most vital and most challenging, but ultimately a pathway that would lead to spiritual and social reform in the country. And I came to understand racism and ultimately racial unity and racial amity from my own assessment as being the, the touchstone of the soul of the country. That was the place where if one investigated with pure heart as much as possible and a, a true intent and sincerity, one could find uh, the inner focal point to reveal the balancing fulcrum for a very chaotic country at that time. And of course, equally chaotic in many ways now. So I'm speaking with Neil McBride, a Baha'i for many years, who's going to share with us his thoughts on a Baha'i perspective on the current state of affairs in the world. Now, Neil, a mutual friend of ours told me that you had an excellent talk on this subject, on the state of affairs in the world, and she recommended that you share your thoughts on this program so that more could hear this perspective. So I welcome you to, if you would, share your thoughts on the state of the world so people could have a new or different perspective to what their perspective might be now based on what they're observing now. 
Oh, I'd be happy to share these thoughts. I'm, by the way, not a scholar and not an academic. So this is a, a layperson's perspective, though I try to keep informed and generally well-read. Yeah, I think these are very, very unusual times in which we live. And for the moment, I'm not going to refer to the events that have happened with regard to the U.S. Congress and the Supreme Court and all that. Those are right on the ground, everyday events. But uh, invite your listeners to join with me in kind of looking at the world from a different altitude. You know, the comment of the 30,000 foot perspective. And I think that perspective is significant factor in understanding any truths. The events of our lives are immediately before us, but understanding them often takes perspective. So I'm going to share some thoughts on that. I, I think that in the broadest of terms, I think we can understand the world as we have known it as coming to the end. And that uh, religious teachings of most of the major world's religions have talked about the end of the world and the promised day and the promise that the, the great Messiah would come, all of them essentially having the same theme that global change would happen and that uh, it would come through difficulty and great adversity, adversity, but it also would open the doorway, the pathway to a new age, the promised day and the kingdom of God on earth. So I think that that's a very audacious proposition to put forth, especially from someone who's not a scholar, academic, or intellectual, but sometimes uh, the average person, if they think and reflect long enough and persevere at it, then they can come to understand and make sense out of what seems to be chaos and anarchy. But I would also say that if we look at this, we have to understand there's a, a duality happening at the same time. And one is the collapse and decay of the institutions that we have come to rely on, both in our personal lives, in our U.S. Uh, social, political context, economic context, and also globally. Uh, the institutions of the world have, uh, and in particularly we can, I can comment on this country, are in a state of decay and collapse. And we only have to look at events re recently to see that the great challenges that come to us in this day of 2018, these challenges cannot be, have not been, are not being addressed effectively by our institutions. These are old, time-worn institutions that have served us in the past, but no longer are adequate for the challenges of the present. Now, the other side of this duality is the emergence of a new world pattern of living and the emergence of new institutions. And so while the old world is collapsing, if we look carefully, and if we look with an informed eye to try to see 
the sprouts, if you will, or the emergence of the light coming up over our dark horizon, whichever metaphor you prefer, if we believe that that may be true, and if we look in that kind of a way, I think we see clear evidences that things are getting better. I'm going to use some illustrations of both just to kind of put greater uh, footing on these overall patterns, but to say that I think your listeners all are pretty much aware of the kind of collapse and challenges that we're encountering. But the ones that stand out, of course, are population migration problems that are happening between Central America and the United States that are so provocative and invite so much political controversy. Migration patterns between Africa and Europe and across the the Mediterranean and other parts of the globe. This is a challenge that's beyond the national form of government that we have, and it demands us to think beyond that kind of a structure. It's also true about environmental issues. There again, uh, global warming and the other manifestations of environmental decay and challenge, those challenges, environmental challenges, don't lend themselves to the response of a national political structure. But we see it also in the other dimensions, the lack of clarity about how we even talk with one another now in a global sense, and the emergence of authoritarianism, which as of the end of World War II and the emergence of the first days of the League of Nations and ultimately the United Nations, there was some sense of, in the broad term, liberal democracy was hopeful that it would bring us towards international dialogue and a process of consultation and negotiation between various governments so that we could address these problems. In recent years, we can see that has changed. And increasingly, authoritarian regimes are taking foothold and avenues of consultation and mutual cooperation are being undermined. That's a very dangerous pattern, given the kinds of global problems that we have. Even if we think that individual leaders in various countries like our own are very intelligent and competent and inspiring, still, we can't expect individual leaders of authoritarian background to resolve what are fundamentally international problems, global problems. And I'd just add to that that that's at a global level, but when we talk about the deterioration of society and decay and chaos, it's also manifest in the difficulties of our institutions. And we can just name a number of them. The collapse of the economy in 2007 and 8, and the abuses and neglects of uh, Wall Street and the collapse of the economy as a result of those abuses reflects the, the challenges and the deficiencies of our current economic system. We have to find a better way. And I'm not adopting any economic, proposing any economic system, but rather to say the one that we have now isn't adequate and we have to search for something better. Our political system obviously is in great disarray and we don't have trust in that. And more recently, we're wondering if we can have trust not only in Congress, but also 
and the executive, but also there's a question mark about the Supreme Court. So our political system is challenged and not necessarily a place where we can put hope and optimism and trust. The same can be true, be said to be true about other institutions that we have relied on. Marriage was an institution and family life institution that were always understood to be fundamental to the social stability and fabric of the society. Now we have an enormously high divorce rate and children, for whatever reason, are increasingly unattended to and neglected and challenged, shall we say, as the demands on family life become so extreme. And the list goes on. We've tried to uh, shore up our uh, response to these kinds of challenges uh, in ways that ultimately have to do with looking backward. And that includes uh, holding on to old prior customs and beliefs, being very ideological in our patterns and becoming tribal. The term tribalism now is very, very common and popular, a way of explaining things. It explains the dysfunction, but we, it doesn't point us towards any avenue which would lead us anyplace. To the contrary, you know, I'm of the increasing belief that our political system would be much better off if we didn't have political parties. But these are the kinds of things that we need to reflect on, investigate, and pursue in order to create a more constructive, hopeful avenue for the future. That's not what we tend to do. So those are the indications of decay, and there are many more, and I just wanted to, to reference that. But simultaneously, we may not see and not given as much attention because when the crisis is at our doorstep, we tend to get the bucket of water and try to put out the fire that's burning the front door down. But in reality, there are some fundamentally important global events that are very encouraging. Uh, the one that's been academically studied and published in recent years is the significant decline in death from warfare. I think that statistic is surprising to me. We see through our channels of communication, which give us great capacity to observe and be informed about the events in the world, we see limitless, seemingly limitless examples of violence in the world and wars that are sprouting up in various regions. However, the research shows pretty clearly that the total number of people who have died from war has gone down dramatically. I think the high point, it's been a while since I looked at this publication, but it's an interesting book done by a Harvard scholar. But the high point, I think, of violence was around the time of the Civil War and World War I and World War II. Actually, from the time of the Civil War forward, the total death rate declined, but then even more dramatically after World War II, and then again more dramatically after the Vietnam War. So the evidence that we see empirically, the anecdotal evidence, is real, but what we're seeing is not global warfare on a mass scale like happened in World War I or World War II or even Vietnam, but rather you know, regional skirmishes 
these are terrible to the people that go through them. It's painful, it's atrocious, it's horrific. But in terms of some 30,000 foot perspective, death from warfare is going down dramatically. And that can only be understood to be a good thing. Another example is the significant decline in the number of diseases that people die from and the total number of people that are dying from disease. And that has improved dramatically in the past couple of decades. Yeah, I mean, typhoid is probably a perfect example. In this country, in the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, typhoid was a problem. And now it's, you know, it's practically eradicated. Yeah, many of the diseases that were killing large numbers of people globally have been successfully attacked and defeated in recent years. And the pattern of people dying from disease is clearly on the decline and declining rapidly. So it's, very, it's a very optimistic avenue. And there's reason to believe that that will continue. And of course, we in part attribute that to the advances in science. But in reality, some of that decline is also the benefit of communication and transportation and other increases in resource that are critical towards life as a functioning, effective global community. And the last example I'll give is one that some are aware of, but many are not, which is the decline in poverty has increased. That is to say, the number of people living in poverty has significantly decreased in recent decades, most noticeably in China and India and Nigeria. Those countries stand out. And in those countries, the middle class has expanded significantly, and with that has come education and, in some cases, improved human rights. In particular, in India, where the racism there was so severe based on a caste system where some were considered as untouchable, that in itself is even being challenged as education comes along with uh, the reduction in poverty. So we're seeing signs of something new emerging on a grand scale. And I would uh, suggest that that's the beginning of a new global pattern. That is to say, global political, economic, and cultural patterns are collapsing as we've known them. The old world, if you will, is giving way and no longer adequate, and something else is emerging. It may be only a flicker of light on the horizon, but still, that's where the dawn is, and that's where we can be hopeful and encouraged. Now, the last part of the inquiry that I would suggest that the, the listeners entertain is, what is the source of this change? Where does it come from? And my own path of search for truth uh, took me to the Baha'i faith and an understanding, a confirmation of my belief first in an almighty benevolent God. And secondly, that God does interact with humankind through his messengers. And that in Baha'i belief, which I came to investigate and understand and embrace, is that these messengers have come at various intervals to help 
move humankind forward to the next stage of advancement and evolution. And the messengers are, uh, take the names that we have heard most commonly in the Western world and in the Western Judeo-Christian tradition uh, with Abraham and Moses and Krishna uh, and Buddha, Krishna and Buddha, of course, being from Asian part of the globe, but continuing on through the teachings of Muhammad and ultimately the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, and that name means the glory of God. And it's this process of unfolding revolution that becomes a, an insight into God's intent for us, which is to say God brought us onto this planet because in his infinite wisdom he loved us and decided that it would be essential that humankind live on this planet ultimately as one people and in peace and harmony in an ever-advancing civilization. And that is the entree then, if you will, to an investigation of the Baha'i faith itself, the teachings of its messengers, Baha'u'llah, and his son, Abdu'l-Baha, and grandson, Shoghi Effendi, all for the purpose of informing humankind how to live spiritual lives that ultimately serve humankind and lived in a pathway of service to God. Now, one aspect in regards, and you used the word revolution, which I thought was interesting because as each of those messengers have, for example, Jesus, Muhammad, these instances, there had been a rebirth in the civilization, which implies that there is some spiritual force that's released when these messengers appear. Like, for instance, in the case of Muhammad, he transformed an Arab culture from a very primitive one to a very scientific and culturally effective one that eventually spread to Europe and took the Europe out of the Dark Ages. So there's this force that seems to occur. And I think you were sort of implying that when you said, well, these, these advances decline, people dying in disease, the increase in the standard of living of people, these positive things that are happening are associated with the force in the revelation of a new messenger of God. And in this instance, we're referring to the messenger Baha'u'llah who came in 1863. Thank you. That was very articulately expressed and I think very helpful to the story that we're trying to share. Baha'u'llah came and the essence of his revelation, and yes, we can think of it as a revolution because the magnitude of change that occurs and is occurring is of such size and scope that it's revolutionary. Uh, revolutionary, we, when we hear that term, we think of violence, of disturbances on the street and warfare, but I suggest that there's another way to think of it, which is, yes, with revolutionary change, there's lots of turbulence, but the essence of it is that it's fundamental in nature. The change is fundamental, not just superficial, and it's a change in the basic order of things rather than the day-to-day -day 
affairs of the society. Baha'u'llah came with a, a revelation, like all of the messengers of God, that contained two essential elements. One was social teachings, and the other was spiritual teachings. We understand that a faith religion, if it's true, if it is founded by one of the messengers of God and inspired by his will, a faith religion has the component of being practical in that it manifests itself in social teachings and in institutions, which the Baha'i faith has, and principles and laws and whatnot, all the mechanisms that go towards having society function and move forward in a reasonably orderly and a patterned, structured way. All of these religions also have a, a mystical side, mystical in the sense that it refers to a, if you will, a God-born force, energy, spirit, and that's what we in religious tradition think of. We say it's the spirit of God. That spirit inspires, and ultimately, these religions are mystic in character, uh, which is to say that we can understand them in a rational way, and we can adopt those teachings that will inform us on how to be Baha'i and how to be Christians and how to be followers of Islam. But ultimately, the change that will occur is going to be fundamentally mystic in character, which is to say it's the will of God. And once we come to investigate that and believe its truth, then we try to align our will with those teachings because we ultimately want to try to bring forth in service to humanity and service to God that which he hath willed. That's part of the fundamental character of the Baha'i faith and all religions. I became aware of the faith and touched by it and impacted by it by reading its writings. And so I want to refer to that pathway and first say that as Baha'is, we believe that every individual has the right and obligation to investigate truth themselves independently, not influenced unduly by anybody else. So we Baha'is share generously and with love, hopefully, and wisdom, the teachings of Baha'u'llah. But ultimately, it's for the seeker to investigate all truth and find what they believe in themselves and where they place their faith. So I became aware of and read the Baha'i writings and learned, among other things, there's a teaching in Baha'i faith which says that man's reality is his thought. And it's something that didn't take great hold of me when I was first a Baha'i, but as the longer I've been a Baha'i, which has been now close to 40 years, the more it seems to me that that teaching is profound. Man's reality is his thought. What we think then ultimately dictates and determines how we live and what kind of a life we create and what kind of a society we create and what kind of a world we create. That is to say, God gives us the tools, his teachings through his messengers and through the writings of those messengers, 
the Bible as an example through Christianity and the various Baha'i books that Baha'u'llah wrote during the course of his life, which there are many, many. With these teachings, we become exposed to the Word of God, which is to say we become exposed to what it is that he would have us do and what we need to know, and we become informed. In the case of Baha'u'llah, in this day and age, we have the unique, very special circumstance that during the course of his life, he wrote with his own pen. His faith originated in 1844, but throughout his life, he wrote many books and tablets in his own pen or written by his amenesis, secretary, if you will, which he authenticated. These teachings and these books have been published in many languages of the world and are available for all literate people to read on their own, to be self-informed and self-instructed, to investigate the truth on our own. So I read these teachings and understood over time the importance of the Word of God and its power. And another of the teachings of the of Baha'u'llah is that every word has a spirit. So when we read Baha'i writings, when I read Baha'i writings, I know it informs my intellect. And so I try to reflect on these and give due consideration to what it says. But I also try to meditate on the spirit that's conveyed in these writings because the spirit informs the heart. There's a place in Baha'u'llah's writings, many places actually, but it's actually affirmed in a book called Paris Talks by his son Abdul Baha, where he says that the highest form of expression that a person can engage with is through the rational mind. But then subsequently, in the following tablet, Abdul Baha says, but the heart, knowledge through the heart, is the more confirming way of knowing truth. So even when you inform the mind, a deeper place to go is in the heart. Well, this is what we find in the writings of Baha'u'llah, which is the ability to gain knowledge of both mind and heart, which is to say that we can connect ourselves in love with Almighty God and are given a vehicle, his writings, to use to bond that connection and his prayers in order to commune with him and his meditations in order to reflect on that which he said. And at the same time, we give full credence to the rational mind and say the individual needs to study this on his own. Well, what is it we're, is it we're studying? Ultimately, Baha'u'llah has a fundamental teaching which is the focal point, if you will, of his revelation. And that is, he said, in this time, at this period of time in the history of mankind and on the globe, it is time for the peoples of the world to live as one. That is, the fundamental truth of the oneness of humankind has been proclaimed, and it is viable and possible this time in the 21st century to actually live that way, and so we must take up that challenge and take up that purpose and live as one in love and in harmony with justice and 
an expression of all of the other virtues that historically have been passed down through the major religions of God. This is a different era. To say 2,000 years ago at the time of Christ or in an earlier period of the teachings of, of Muhammad that mankind was one and we should live as such would clearly be incongruous. That is to say, how could, in the time of Christ, how could people live as one when on this globe, people in the Middle East had no knowledge of the natives, if you will, the local native peoples that lived in the Western hemispheres? No knowledge at all. As a matter of fact, people didn't even know, know and believe that the world was round, that the globe was round, that the belief at that time was that the world was flat to the extent that people reflected on those questions. So there's a congruity now to this teaching of Baha'u'llah, which is that mankind is one and we have to live as one. Now, I'm going to bring you full circle, if you will, on my own quest to say that in this day, to entertain the idea that mankind is one and that we are one family may seem a bit ridiculous because the family is in such chaos, dysfunction, violence, confusion, prejudice, all of those things. I'd say that, you know, in some ways, the blessing I had of growing up in a somewhat dysfunctional family was that I had a craving to understand what was the truth what were the truths underlying the chaos in which I tended to live a lot? And that was, I developed an, an acumen to try to understand what's going on. And that's been with me all my life. And it's that kind of curiosity and drive for understanding that I suggest in some form we all need to have now because these are very confusing times. And I would reiterate, the old world order as we've known it is giving way. The institutions, all of them, education, business, the religions, politics, family, go down the list. They're all proving to be inadequate to the requirements of this day. We absolutely have to have a new pattern of living, new institutions, new structures, and a reaffirmation, if you will, of the fundamental spiritual truths that have been true throughout eternity. And those truths are found in Baha'i writings. They're explicitly stated in a lovely little book called The Hidden Words. And companion to that little book of hidden words are many other books that Baha'u'llah has written and uh, Abdu Baha has expounded on, which have to do with social teachings. That is to say, the spiritual truths of all the ages have not changed. But the social teachings, of course, have to have been made contemporary for this day. So some of those are, and we need to embrace, the, the teachings of the equality of men and women. Most essential in this day, because it's only when women take their rightful place in all the avenues of profession and life and power and governance and influence, only then will the world finally find peace. My own view of this is that 
the aggressive, dominant, combative nature of men is of a disservice increasingly to the needs of the globe at this time. And we need the balancing influence of the virtues that women bring to public life and public discourse and our social and political institutions. We need this because the world is so badly out of balance. So the equality of men and women is one teaching. The eradication of all forms of prejudice, sexism, one, but by no means the only, of course, racial prejudice in this country, which I've alluded to previously as being the most vital issue. And that's a discussion specifically deserving attention at another time, but it is most vital. And other social teachings having to do with an economy that is spiritually grounded and just and equitable, unlike the economy that we have now in this country. And many, many other social teachings that have to do with trying to bring forth a nurturing, loving, supportive social system, and also instilling in individuals the sense of responsibility and the capacity to live independent and self-reliant lives. These are the, the challenges that we need to take up, and the Baha'i faith is a, a bountiful source of knowledge and inspiration in order for us to, to follow such a pathway. I'm speaking with Neil McBride, a Baha'i for many years, who's been sharing with us his thoughts on the Baha'i perspective on the current state of affairs in the world. And Neil, I just want to say that I am imagining those listening to this broadcast are people that only see the world from the point of view of its dysfunction, and that they really have no hope because what they're seeing is, as you described, the dysfunction getting worse and worse. And people are saying, I can't believe it, it could get any worse and then it, then it gets worse. And so there's this hopelessness that a person can actually have as their perspective. And I think what you bring forth with the Baha'i teachings is that really the Baha'i faith is bringing forth a hopeful message. The best way that I can respond is to say that first, I think it takes great courage for a person to choose to lift themselves out of the position that they're currently in and step forward and investigate the possibility of a, a hopeful truth, a, a truth in which one can place one's total faith. That takes courage because in so doing, the risk is that there where you where one would walk and investigate and become hopeful, all too often, undoubtedly, many, many people have had their hopes dashed. And it's harder to have your hopes dashed than it is to just hunker down and just kind of survive and be independent. So I don't make light at all of the challenge of being hopeful and pursuing the path of hope, because ultimately it's a, it's a path towards faith. But that has to be earned, unfortunately. Baha'u'llah doesn't give us all of this without us striving to 
find him, if you will, and find his teachings and embrace his faith. But I'll tell you a story. When I was very young and investigating the faith, I didn't know it at the time, but I was I knew I was floundering and had been floundering for years, but I didn't know I was in a kind of dead state. It would sound a bit absurd unless somebody has had this experience, but ultimately I came to see what I understood to be this multifaceted, complex, bountiful set of teachings and beliefs, laws and inspirations that are reflected and shared in the Baha'i faith. And that became transformative, not superficially, but in the most deep ways, all transformative into my soul. And it was then 40 years later of pursuing the teachings of the faith that I understood the, the boundless bounty of this, that I couldn't experience all of the blessing of the faith all at once, that it had to unfold over time as I grew and developed and strived to try to understand and apply these teachings. But there was that moment when I understood that I had left hopelessness behind and became a person of hope and faith. And I'm going to read you a prayer which at the time uh, expressed my profound awakening, if you will. I'm going to read one sentence from that prayer and then step back and read the whole thing. But I want to draw out the meaning, the, the significance of this one sentence. It goes, I was one dead. Thou didst quicken me with the water of life. I was withered. Thou didst revive me with the heavenly stream of thine utterance, which hath flowed forth from the pen of the all-merciful. Now I'm going to begin and say the whole prayer so you can put that in context. My God, my adored one, my king, my desire, what tongue can voice my thanks to thee? I was heedless. Thou didst awaken me. I had turned back from thee. Thou didst graciously aid me to turn towards thee. I was one dead. Thou didst quicken me with the water of life. I was withered. Thou didst revive me with the heavenly stream of thine utterance, which hath flowed forth from the pen of the all-merciful. O divine providence, all existence is begotten by thy bounty. Deprive it not of the waters of thy generosity. Neither do thou withhold it from the ocean of thy mercy. I beseech thee to aid and assist me at all times and under all conditions, and seek from the heaven of thy grace thine ancient favor. Thou art in truth the Lord of bounty and the sovereign of the kingdom of eternity. So, Neil, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on the Baha'i perspective on the state of the world and how people could actually acquire a, a positive outlook about where the world may go. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure, truly. Thank you, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Neil McBride, a longtime Baha'i who provided unique insights from a Baha'i perspective on the state of the affairs in this country as well as globally. You can find this and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. 
and on the YouTube channel, A Baha'i Perspective. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
JLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.